There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the year 1204, Constantinople, the largest and most splendid city in Europe by far, was sacked, not by Muslims, but by fellow Christians, and not only sacked, but gutted by fire and indiscriminate violence. The once mighty Byzantine Empire was torn apart and was never able to recover its former glory. The main beneficiaries were the Venetians, who had provided the ships for and participated in the expedition, now known as the Fourth Crusade. Afterwards, Venice became the hub of a powerful maritime republic, replacing Byzantium as the principal naval power of the eastern Mediterranean. The Byzantines of the time were convinced that the sack of their city had been planned beforehand by the rapacious Westerners, but looking back at the whole story of the Crusade, it was in many ways rather the unfortunate outcome of a chain of events which happened by chance. We enter a period from which much better contemporary sources have survived, and also from different perspectives, enabling us to make judgments on such questions. Perhaps the Venetians did purposefully drive events to the destruction of their main local rival. Ask yourself the old Latin expression, qui bono, or who benefits, when questioning the motives behind the crime. I'll let you judge for yourself. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles, the siege of Constantinople, from 1203 to 1204. Part 1 of 2 In recent podcasts, I have been telling the story of the Crusader states in the Middle East. As a brief recap, in 1099, the soldiers of the First Crusade successfully captured the city of Jerusalem. Then, over the next several years, those Crusaders who decided to settle in the region, often called Franks, took advantage of Muslim disunity and carved out a set of Christian-held states along virtually the entire coastline of the eastern Mediterranean, in the region of today's Lebanon, Israel and part of Syria. But then, in 1187, disaster struck when a major Christian army was annihilated by the Sultan Saladin in the decisive Battle of Hattin. Such was the devastation on the Frankish forces that day, that within the next couple of months, Saladin's forces arrested control of all crusaded territory bar a few coastal cities, notably Antioch, Tripoli and Tyre. The disaster at Hattin prompted the call for the Third Crusade, which became perhaps the best equipped and best manned of all crusades, 
led by the three most powerful rulers in Europe of the time. Emperor Frederick of Germany unfortunately drowned in a river in Anatolia while on his way to the Holy Land. Richard de Lionheart, King of England, and Philip Augustus, King of France, arrived in the Holy Land by sea and helped the Franks recapture the port city of Acre. Philip then returned to France, but King Richard stayed in the east to help lead a Christian army against Saladin. Both Richard and Saladin were struggling to impose their will on their men. Saladin faced the combined problem of ambitious, rebellious relatives and an army weary of years of fighting. On the crusader side, Richard's preferred target for attack was Egypt. If successfully captured, the Nile region, which still at the time had a very sizable Christian population, could have become a key power base to gather resources for an attack on the ultimate target, Jerusalem. The plan made a lot of strategic sense, but the majority of Richard's army were focused only on the holy city and could not understand the reason for delay or diversion. In the end, Richard failed to take Jerusalem and was forced to return west since his kingdom back home became threatened by both King Philip of France and the Lionheart's younger brother, John. Richard had, however, left the Crusader states in better shape than when he arrived, having captured a number of coastal settlements. Meanwhile, the Byzantine Empire was suffering political upheaval. In September 1180, after a reign of 38 years, the Emperor Manuel died. Manuel had made some mistakes, but overall had been a wise ruler, who had made great efforts to foster good relations with Latin Christendom. He left his heir, his son, Alexius II. Since he was only 11 years old, a council of regency was formed under the child's mother, Maria of Antioch. However, Maria became deeply unpopular in Constantinople, and in 1182, a cousin of Manuel called Andronicus Comnenus staged a revolt and led an army across Asia Minor towards the capital. Andronicus's following was not that large, and with determined opposition could have been repelled. But by the time he reached the Bosporus, public opinion in Constantinople had swung behind him and he was hailed as the saviour of the young emperor from the evil influence of the empress. The commander of the fleet deserted to Andronicus, who was therefore able to capture the city with virtually no opposition. In the next months, the empire was plunged into an orgy of violence as he proceeded to liquidate his political opponents. Firstly, Maria was murdered, followed by several other members of the imperial family, even those who had initially supported Andronicus's takeover. The unfortunate young Alexius was first sidelined when Andronicus was proclaimed emperor in September 1183, and shortly afterwards strangled with a bowstring, and his body dumped into the Bosporus. Even though Andronicus's purges were generally directed against his own family and their supporters, he earned the reputation as enemy of the Latins on account of an incident which accompanied his seizure of the throne. Whether on the order of their commander 
on their own initiative, a number of his troops targeted a group of Westerners who lived in the city, the majority of whom were probably Pisans and Genoese. Many of the Italians fled, but the aged and the infirm and those left behind were killed without mercy. A hospital run by the Knights of St John was attacked and the sick murdered in their beds. In the long term, the incident was a disaster for the Empire's relations with Western Europe and added fuel to the already virulent anti-Byzantine propaganda which could be used to justify Western military action against the Empire. Even before these events, the kings of Hungary and Sicily were threatening to invade the Empire's western provinces. In June 1185, the Normans of southern Italy landed an army on the Adriatic coast. They quickly captured Dyrrachium, also called Durazzo, a city which had been earlier targeted by the Normans, by Robert Guiscard before the First Crusade, and then later by Bohemond in 1108. After a short siege, Dyrrachium fell and was violently plundered. The Westerners were soon after defeated and forced off Byzantine territory completely, but the attack increased perception among both the Byzantine leaders and the common people that Western Europe presented a serious threat. It is surprising in many ways that the two halves of the Christian world could not manage better relations, despite their religious differences for they would have had much to gain from working together. When Alexius I had requested military assistance in the 1090s and so triggered the First Crusade, he could not have imagined the numbers of men who, driven by religious fervour, would make their way east to fight for the cause. After nearly a century of anti-Byzantine propaganda from crusaders who sought to seek blame for their own failures on others, Relations between Catholics and Greek Orthodox were at an all-time low. The Italian city-states had always been instrumental in the development of the Crusader states. One example is how a fleet of ships from Genoa had helped the siege of Jaffa during the First Crusade. Since then, the Frankish ports, such as Acre and Tyre, had provided Italian merchants with great opportunities to acquire goods from the Orient to sell back to the West. The great rise in wealth and power of cities such as Pisa, Genoa, Amalfi and Venice was partly founded on a flourishing trade with the Crusader states, who, thanks to their location, were connected to a network of ancient trade routes, extending as far east as China. Tripoli was famous for its silk, Tyre for its glass goods and dyed fabrics, and via the port of Acre one could acquire Tibetan musk, cinnamon and pepper, nutmeg, cloves and many more exotic items. The Europeans were thus exposed to a new world of bright colours and vivid scents. In return, Western Europe brought provisions to the Crusaders, as well as the resources of war, such as arms, metal and horses. The most wealthy Italian city by the 12th century was Venice, a principal actor in the story of the Fourth Crusade. This beautiful city, famous for its waterways, lies at the most northern point of the Adriatic Sea. 
Here the River Po churns out tons of alluvial material from the distant Alps, which settle to form large expanses of marsh and lagoons. So great is the volume of these glacial deposits that the Po Delta is said to be advancing 15 feet a year eastwards into the sea. One indication of this is that the ancient port of Adria, after which the Adriatic Sea is named, now lies 14 miles inland. The origins of Venice are rather humble. During the 5th century, as Germanic tribes invaded Italy from the north, the location of present-day Venice became a refuge for Romans fleeing the enemy. The area consisted of an archipelago of some thousand mosquito-infested islands, covered in marshland and reed beds, some a few hectares in size, others much smaller, and barely above the water's surface. On the far eastern side of the archipelago, the sediment formed elongated spits of land, up to 12 kilometres long, called Lidos, which acted as a natural dam against waves and wind. It was a perilous existence for the Roman refugees who moved there, the last resort to escape the invaders. In winter, heavy storms regularly flooded the islands, and apart from rain, there was no drinking water. The early Venetians dredged sand from the sea, which they poured onto the islands in order to construct navigable canals. To build houses, they first had to construct foundations made of wood, and over time they made several of the islands inhabitable. Beyond fish and salt, nothing could be produced, no wheat, no timber and little meat, so that they were always vulnerable to famine. Their sole skills were navigation and the carrying of goods, but at these they were to excel. From the beginning, Venice had a rather unusual social structure. With a lack of land, there could be no traditional feudal system, and no clear division between landowner and serf as elsewhere in Europe. The nobles, instead of a warrior class, were those merchants who were the most skilled at making a profit. And all leaders were elected, including the head of the city, who had the title of Doja, arrived from the word Duke. The difficulties of life bound all its people together in an act of patriotic solidarity, likened by the historian Roger Crowley to the crew of a ship subject to the perils of the sea. The Venetians grew up as subject of the Eastern Empire and drew its art, its ceremonial traditions and its trade from the Byzantine world. Yet the Venetians were also Latin Catholics and as such nominal subjects to the Pope. Between such opposing forces, they achieved a degree of independence from both sides. The main source of tension with the papacy was the Venetians' wish to trade wherever profit was to be made, regardless of politics or religion. By the 10th century, the city's population had significantly grown, but was still far from the splendour of the city today. Low wooden houses, wharves and warehouses fronted the water, but the area still mostly consisted of a patchwork of marsh and open space where people grew vegetables, kept pigs and cows and tended vines. 
Ships crowded the commercial heart of the city, the Rialto, their masts protruding above the buildings. The Venetians knew their livelihood depended on trade across the sea, but their problem was that the voyage down the Adriatic was terribly unsafe. The Dalmatian coastline, now part of modern-day Croatia, is deeply crenellated with numerous caves and offshore islands, ideal for harbouring pirates. The first attempts to overcome the pirates were not successful. The Doja was killed and the Venetians were forced to pay for free passage to the open seas. But at the turn of the century, several naval expeditions were sent to assert authority in the region. A show of force was enough to pull most towns into line. Those that resisted, such as the island of Lagosta, were attacked. The people led away in chains and the pirates' nests demolished. By the 1080s, while the Byzantines were fast losing control of their Italian territories, the Venetians, in contrast, were in the ascendancy. In the Adriatic, they helped defend the empire against powerful Norman warbands, such as when Robert Guiscard attacked Dyrrachium in 1081. As a reward, Emperor Alexius I granted Venetian merchants the right to trade freely, exempt from tax throughout his realm. Suddenly, a large number of cities and ports were opened up for commercial opportunity, including Athens, Thebes, Antioch, and above all, Constantinople. The Venetians were provided with a prize site down by the Golden Horn, the main harbour area of the imperial city. It included three quays, a church and bakery, shops and warehouses for storing goods. Though nominal subjects of the emperor, the Venetians had effectively acquired their own colony in the heart of the richest city on earth, under extremely favourable conditions. Their only limitation was that they were barred from trading in the Black Sea. Venetian merchants flocked to the numerous ports and harbours of the East Mediterranean coastline and established several thriving colonies by the second half of the 12th century. The trade routes of not only the Byzantine Empire and the Crusader states, but also Muslim Egypt, were passing rapidly into their hands. These boom years saw the accession of many of the great families that would play an important part in Venice's later history. The Byzantines, rather complacently, still saw themselves as the centre of the world, where land ownership was more glorious than vulgar commerce. However, allowing their own navy to decline, they were becoming increasingly dependent on Venice, not only for commerce, but for maritime defence. The relationship with the Venetian upstarts was marked by frequent ups and downs, as trading rights were withdrawn, only to be granted once more, depending on the political situation. The Byzantines also sought to play Venice off against their commercial rivals, Pisa and Genoa, granting both trading rights in Constantinople. By the 1190s, decades of growing antagonism had seen the end of the old harmonious relationship between Venice and Byzantium, symbolic of a general discord between Catholic and Orthodox Europe. The bad feelings were felt not only by the leaders, but perhaps even more so among the common people. The Byzantine chronicler Nicetus Coniates 
wrote that, quote, Between us and the Franks is set the widest gulf. We are poles apart. We have not a single thought in common. They are stiff-necked, with the proud affection of an upright carriage, and the love to sneer at the modesty and smoothness of our manners. End quote. In 1198, a new pope was elected, Innocent III, the pontiff who would go on to proclaim the Fourth Crusade. At the age of 37, Innocent was one of the youngest men ever to ascend to the throne of St Peter, and would go on to become perhaps the most able and most powerful pope of the Middle Ages. A mosaic portrait from the year 1200 shows a man with large eyes, a longish nose and a moustache. He had been born in 1160 or 1161 into a land-owning family near Rome. In the 1180s he travelled north to Paris University, the intellectual hub of medieval Europe and the most admired centre of theological study. He then bolstered his first-class education with three years' study at the Law School of Bologna, again the most prestigious institution of its sort in the West. While earlier popes had preserved copies of some important documents, it was not until the time of Innocent III that a systematic archive was kept. The thousands of letters sent out from and received by the papal office remain an invaluable body of material enabling us to follow Innocent's planning of the crusade and his reaction to its progress. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On the 15th of August, 1198, six months into his pontificate, Innocent issued the call for crusade. More than 800 years later, the Pope's passion for the expedition comes through. Quote, Following the pitiable collapse of the territory of Jerusalem, following the lamentable massacre of the Christian people, following the deplorable invasion of that land on which the feet of Christ stood, and where God our King had deigned before the beginning of time to work out salvation in the midst of earth, following our ignominious alienation from our possession of the true cross, the apostolic see, alarmed over the ill fortune of such calamity, grieved. It cried out and wailed to such an extent that due to incessant crying out, its throat was made hoarse. From incessant weeping, its eyes almost failed. Therefore take up, O sons, the spirit of fortitude, receive the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. 
Trust not in numbers, but rather in the power of God. Come to the aid of him, through whom you exist, live and have being. End quote. Preachers delivered passionate sermons across Western Europe in the years 1199 and 1200. The leaders of Germany could not be recruited since they were occupied by civil war at the time. Nor could the Spanish Christians, since they were themselves fully occupied in the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims. The appeal was instead directed to the kingdoms of France, England, Hungary and Sicily. Richard de Lionheart of England was the most likely of the kings to accept, but he was unfortunately killed during a siege in France in March 1199. In the end, all of the kings of Europe were too occupied in their own lands to take up crusade. There was little enthusiasm in general for the crusade at first, but eventually in November 1199 a few high-ranking nobles decided to take the cross. They were the 20-year-old Count Theobald of Champagne and his 28-year-old cousin Count Louis of Blois. The lands of Champagne comprised one of the largest, richest and most prestigious lordships in Western Europe. Count Theobald was, along with the Count of Flanders, probably the most senior figure of the realm behind the King of France. His grandparents included former crusaders King Louis VII of France and Eleanor of Aquitaine, and he was also nephew of Richard de Lionheart, King John of England and King Philip of France. At last, Innocent's project had attracted men of real authority. The taking of the cross by Theobald and Louis reignited interest in France for the Fourth Crusade. Following their example, a large number of lesser nobles came forward and pledged their support. One such man was Simon de Montfort, who would go on to gain notoriety as the leader of the crusade against the Cathar heretics of southern France. A list of the volunteers is provided by the chronicler Geoffrey de Villardouin. As a member of the elite inner circle of the crusader leadership, Geoffrey participated in most of its key meetings and so was able to provide an unparalleled insight into its workings. Some historians have criticised him for bias and concealing facts that could reflect badly on the crusade. More generally, he is judged to be without sinister purpose. Fortunately, his work can be contrasted with other excellent contemporary sources. As well as the letters of Pope Innocent, we also have the viewpoint of a humble knight, Robert of Clary, who wrote a record of his experiences on the campaign. Though unlike Villarduin, he was not privy to the highest decision-making levels, Robert's work, written in Old French rather than Latin, is full of ideas and opinions as to why the crusade developed as it did, and reveals his sense of marvel at the size and scale of Constantinople. Our chief source from the Byzantine side is the history of Nikitas Koniates, who held high office in Constantinople up until the city's sack. Enthusiasm for the crusade began to filter across northern Europe, 
The next notable crusade was Count Baldwin of Flanders, whose family could boast the longest and most intense commitment to the crusades, since Robert of Flanders had joined the first crusade. But when the leading nobles assembled in the town of Soissons, in the north of Champagne, in the spring of 1200, there was still some concern that overall the crusaders were too few in number. They debated who else might follow them, and also how best to reach the eastern Mediterranean. Following the troubles of the earlier crusaders, who had tried to trek across Anatolia, they decided to follow the example of Richard and Philip from the Third Crusade, and travel by sea. Although more expensive, sailing was the quickest and safest way to go. Unfortunately, two of the three Italian naval powers, to Genoa and Pisa, were at the time involved in a period of intense feuding, and so were not in a position to provide assistance, leaving just Venice. Geoffrey de Villarduin was among the six envoys sent to the Republic to negotiate a sea passage, and the terms that those men agreed to were amongst the most important influences on the outcome of the Crusade. The envoys arrived in Venice during Lent of 1201 and were greeted by the doge, Enrico Dandolo. Dandolo was a remarkable man, then aged 90 and completely blind, but still with a very sharp mind and full of energy and widely respected. After several days of negotiation, the doge's answer is recorded by Villarduin. It began... Quote, we will build transport to carry 4,500 horses and 9,000 squires and other ships to accommodate 4,500 knights and 20,000 foot soldiers. We will also include in our contract a nine-month supply of rations for all these men and fodder for all the horses. End quote. And in it, quote, it now remains for you to consider if or if you, on your part, can accept and fulfil all our conditions. End quote. The envoys discussed the matter at length and decided to accept the Venetians' terms before returning to France to deliver the news. One very important detail of the treaty was kept secret to all but a handful of signatories. It referred to the Holy Land, but in truth there was never an intention among the leaders to go straight to Jerusalem. Villarduin confessed in his chronicle, quote, It was secretly agreed in close council that we would go to Egypt, because via Cairo one could more easily destroy the Turks than by anywhere else, but publicly it was announced that we were going overseas. End quote. During the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart had realised that Egypt was vulnerable to attack due to years of political instability there and that its resources, if taken from the Muslims, could be a huge boost to the whole crusader cause in the long term. As it is sometimes expressed, the keys to Jerusalem lie in Cairo. The Third Crusade failed in part because the rank and file were much more inspired by fighting immediately for the ground on which Jesus stood, regardless of whether it made strategic sense. Also, the Venetians were keen to be able to tap into the commercial opportunity of western-oriented Egypt. It was then the natural access point to the highly lucrative spice routes, a far greater prize for them than Tyre or Acre could ever provide. 
Viradwin, on arriving back in Champagne, found his lord, Count Theobald, gravely ill. Despite being delighted on the news of the agreement, Theobald died some days after. This was a serious setback for the crusade, which was now desperately in need of new recruits. Viradwin credits himself with suggesting the solution. He proposed Boniface, the 50-year-old Marquis of Montferrat from northern Italy around Turin, to take overall charge of the crusade. Boniface was a very high-ranking noble, closely related to both the kings of France and Germany. His immediate family had already left their mark on the politics of Western Europe, Byzantium and the Crusader states. His father, for example, had fought in the disastrous Battle of Hattin, and a brother of his, William Longsword, had married Sibylla, heiress to the throne of Jerusalem, and fathered the future Baldwin V before dying suddenly of illness. Another brother, Conrad, had fought for the Byzantine Emperor Isaac Angelus in Constantinople before travelling to Tyre just in time to lead the port city fight back against Saladin, and in so doing helped the Franks to attain a foothold on the Levantine coast. Boniface was also well respected for his military and leadership qualities and appeared to be the ideal head of the crusade. He did, however, have to spend a few months resolving issues back home before an extended stay away in the east. The date of the launch of the crusade was set as Easter of 1202, but few men managed to reach Venice by then. Instead, as the summer went on, more crusaders arrived in groups, but it was becoming clear that the hoped-for number of recruits was never going to arrive. The situation was made more acute by some of the crusaders deciding to choose their own routes to reach the Holy Land. Viradwin was highly alarmed at the development because it meant that the crusaders would not be able to fulfil their side of the contract. They had sworn to pay the Venetians 85,000 marks in the expectation that 35,000 men and 4,500 horses would use their ships. Since only about a third of the expected numbers arrived, there remained a huge shortfall. Fierce disputes broke out amongst the army about how to proceed. Some wanted to leave and seek other routes to the Holy Land, while others were prepared to do everything they could to pay off the debt. The leading nobles tried to set an example by selling off their valuables, but the gap remained a staggering 34,000 marks. For Venice, bankruptcy threatened after the great costs spent on building the brand new ships and the locals became angry. Dandolo went into negotiations once more with the Crusaders and agreed to allow postponement of payment in return for help in attacking the Venetians' local rival, the port city of Zara. Faced with the prospect otherwise of the Crusades collapsed, most agreed, even though this was theologically extremely tricky. Zara was not only a Christian city, but Catholic. Worse still, its new overlord, the King of Hungary, had himself taken the cross, although had not yet made concrete steps to fulfil his pledge. What's more, Pope Innocent had already written to Dandolo, explicitly instructing him not to attack Hungarian territory. 
Boniface of Montferrat, the titular head of the crusade, politely excused himself from this initial mission, but by October a large combined Venetian crusader army with Enrico Dandolo at the head was setting off. Hundreds of ships spread their sails across the lagoon, their banners and ensigns fluttering in the breeze. According to Viraduin, quote, never did such a magnificent fleet sail from any port. One might say that the whole sea sparkled on fire with ships. End quote. The Venetians had managed to divert the crusade to help them reassert their authority in the Adriatic over both insubordinate cities and troublesome pirates. Many of the crusaders, already frustrated by the long wait, already saw the venture as a perversion of the crusading vows. The Tsarans, on the arrival of the overwhelming naval power, immediately surrendered and sent a delegation to the Doge to offer terms. Dandolo responded that he must confer with the French nobles. At that moment a ship arrived from Rome. Pope Innocent had heard of the expedition and sent a furious letter threatening anyone with excommunication who violated Christian lands, damning the very souls that crusading was meant to save. The threat opened up all the underlying tensions of the enterprise and compelled a group of French knights, led by Simon de Montfort, to declare to the Tsarans that the French would refuse to attack their city. Armed with this promise, the Tsaran delegation returned to the city, encouraged now to put up resistance. Dandolo, however, and the Venetians were determined to continue the offensive, whatever the Pope had to say. The crusader leaders found themselves between a rock and a hard place, caught between excommunication and the breaking of an agreement of the Venetians, and reluctantly agreed to join in the attack. The unfortunate Tsarans, who had tried to surrender peacefully, now found themselves subjected to overwhelming force. According to Viraduin, quote, The next morning the troops encamped in front of the gates of the city. They set up their siege engines and other machines of war, which they had in plentiful supply. Meanwhile, on the seaward side, their scaling ladders were raised from all the ships in the harbour. The siege engines now began to shoot stones at the walls and towers of Zara. This assault went on for about five days, and then sappers were sent to work on one of the towers and began to undermine the wall. The people inside the town no sooner saw what was happening than they offered to surrender on the very terms they had previously rejected by the advice of those who wished to break up our army. End quote. Barring a few strategic executions, the Venetians spared the citizens' lives. The city was evacuated and the victors looted the city without mercy. It was now mid-November and Dandolo persuaded the crusader leaders that the army should overwinter in the newly captured city. The rank and file soldiers, however, were aggrieved. Firstly, as they were impatient to get to the Holy Land, and secondly, because they felt exploited. While they were paid little, the crusader leadership took all the city's goods for themselves. Popular resentment broke out into violence between the Venetians and the French, and order was only re-established with difficulty by the army commanders. What the ordinary crusaders did not know, because the news was kept 
from them by their leaders was that they had all been excommunicated by a pope, furious at having his direct orders being disobeyed. If Innocent thought that things could get no worse, he was wrong. Things were about to get far worse. The forces that drove the enterprise forward were about to deliver another extraordinary twist to the Fourth Crusade, which was soon to end up being diverted to the capital city of the Christian East. Please join me next week to find out what happened when the Crusaders arrived at Constantinople. Until then, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.